Um, here in our third lecture, the question before us today is three what? Margaret, I'm going to hand you this. There you are. Yeah. So the question is three what? I kind of left that with you last week. Um, we'll take your answers as we go on. But to be quite honest, um, other than saying that the three are God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Son is God, Father is God, Holy Spirit is God, the Scriptures don't provide us with the answer, at least explicitly. Uh, the answer is there, but we need to read between the lines a little bit, and that's what we're going to attempt to do this evening. So at this point, it's important, um, and it must be noted, that in order to identify what the three are, we are compelled to move beyond strictly scriptural language. Why? For the simple reason that, apart from the names, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're not provided with specific terminology to distinguish between the three. But if you guys can remember back to our very first lecture, we talked about the way the Trinity is revealed in the Scriptures. It's not so much an object of direct explanation as it is a part of the entire narration of the Bible. We can't really make sense of the Bible without the Trinity. And so then, um, we're kind of left conceptually with some holes, and we need to fill that in. And so, you know, the standard biblical terms such as God or Lord simply will not do because it would be heresy to say that there are three gods or something along the lines of three lords. There's only one God and there's only one Lord. Therefore, although we're going to leave the scriptural terms behind and introduce new uh, terminology here, um, we're not leaving the meaning of Scripture, right? In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're pressing further into it. Um, I've already read a part of this quote um, in our first lecture. It's from Herman Bavinck. He says, As the Word of God, not only its exact words, but also the inferences le legitimately drawn from it have binding authority. So not just what it says, but what it infers. And what's inferred about the Trinity, we have to read from um, passages that might not be explicitly about the Trinity. And then he goes on, The use of these terms is not designed to make possible the introduction of new extra-biblical and anti-biblical dogmas, but on the contrary, to defend the truth of Scripture against all heresy. So because the Scripture does not provide us with a technical term to distinguish the three from one another, the Scripture doesn't pose the question, three what, and then answer it with, a specific word, uh, because that's not the case, we have to dig deeper, um, not only into the exact words, but into the sense inferred by the Scripture. Um, again, we have to read between the lines. And so in order to say something intelligible about the uniqueness of the three, we have to leave behind um, proof texting, remember we talked about that, um, and strict biblical terminology, and enter into the implicit structure that undergirds all of Scripture itself. So in other words, we just have to do theology. That's what we're up to today in trying to answer this question, three what? So, based on our lecture last week, 
we can rule out some faulty formulations from the get-go. Right, when we ask the question three, what the first and most obvious conclusion that we can exclude is that there are three gods. Trinity, remember, means threefold, not triple. A very helpful um, catchphrase there, threefold, not triple. And while almost none will confess this view explicitly, um, it slips through in certain social Trinitarian models. Um, if there are three individuals, um, three separate centers of consciousness, we inevitably run into the territory of tritheism, right? Remember, that's what we talked about a little bit last week. So we might try valiantly to synthesize these three by means of their most perfect and intense empathy, as Jürgen Moltmann said. Um, but ultimately, if we have three individuals, if we have three separate centers of consciousness, um, we're ultimately led into that territory of tritheism, and we are left with three natures and therefore three gods, of course, and that's simply not going to do. So we set that view aside. Uh, another conclusion that we ruled out um, is that the three are parts or components that compo- compose to combine God. Now, initially, this route seems more agreeable to say that we have parts that co-inhere to create the Trinity. Um, again, because can it not be that the three are distinguished by the three different attributes they possess? So we might say, when someone asks us three what, well, we'll say three gods who are distinguished by the different attributes, I'm sorry, three persons who are distinguished by the different attributes they possess. But again, that might work, but in order to affirm it, we have to admit a substantial difference between the three. Right? If the Father has certain attributes that the Son doesn't have, and likewise the Son has attributes that the Father doesn't have, and so forth with the Holy Spirit, then we have three individuals, so to speak, with um, all sub-divinity. None of them is entirely divine because none of them possesses the entirety of the Godhead. And so that might work, right? It's maybe an easy way to synthesize it, but we have to, um, if we were to go with that, we have to disregard the clear testimony of Scripture that the um, fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. Uh, Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Holy Spirit, um, can search um, even the deep things of God, right? So we have to put that one out away as well. And maybe a, con- uh, a popular example of that is like the egg, right? You've probably heard that explanation of the Trinity before. Um, the Trinity is like the, the eggshell, and then the egg white, and then the yolk within it. It's a nice way to conceptualize it, but um, again, it falls short because the eggshell is not the yolk, and the yolk is not the egg wide, and so on and so forth. So we still have differing attributes, and so that's not going to work. So if the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not three gods, and they're not three components, or even three manifestations, we'll come to that later, but real and actual distinctions within the one God, then we have to ask ourselves again, what are they? And according to the historic answer, they are three distinct persons. As the Trinitarian shorthand goes, 
one being, three persons. But that doesn't solve the problem. We've simply replaced one question with another. We asked three what? And we said three persons. Well, now we have to answer what the term person means. And at this point, I'd like to open up a little bit and just get your thoughts. What do you think? Well, first, do you refer to the Trinity in that way? One being three persons. Mike. Okay, yeah. I guess I was emphasizing distinct to just make the point that that threeness that we find in salvation history is real within God. But yeah, distinct. Okay, so you could leave that out, certainly. That overplays my hand a little bit. Liz? Then you don't have to separate them. Okay. So we're getting on some of the, the reason why person is confusing, but we'll get there. Yes? Sure. Yeah. Of one mind. Okay. Okay. Yes. Three distinct entities of one mind. And and honestly, that when you said one mind, that's similar to what we we're talking about last week, um, where we talked about what it means to still be monotheist is to say that there's not three distinct centers of consciousness, but there's still one God with one will, one power, one authority, so on and so forth. So yeah, three distinct entities, right? That's a, certainly a word that gets thrown around. Um, what about persons itself? What does that term communicate, and do you think it fits? Any takers? That's all right, okay. Well, let's get into it. So again, handed down to us as the answer to the question, three what is the term person? But it's not all that obvious why person is the most adequate answer. So I want to take you through a discussion that Augustine has in his classic work, The Trinity. He says that when we ask the question, three what, we are asking, what do the three have in common? In other words, we're looking for a single term that can tell us what the three are. So take, for example, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we say that they're not the same, that Abraham is not Isaac, Isaac is not Abraham, and neither is uh, Jacob, either of the other two. Um, we're saying that they're not the same. And we're saying, when we're saying that they're not the same, we're saying that they're three, right? And then when someone asks us three what, um, we can answer, we can say, well, they're three men, if we want to be very general about it. Uh, we can also say they're three humans, or we can say they're three patriarchs of the nation Israel. But in regard to those three, um, we could not say three women or three boys or three something else, right? Because they're only that. And likewise, if we were to take some of us in here, or right, take Mike, myself, and my father, we could say, yes, we have three men. If we want to be more specific, we say we have three men over the age of 28. We couldn't say we have three men who are over six foot. That only belongs to Mike, right? We're looking for a common term. That's the point in what we're trying to do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so therefore, as it pertains to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we're asked, three, when we're asked the question, three what, we're after some term that might adequately tell us what the three share in common. 
So for this reason, we can't say that there are three fathers, right? Because there's only one father. The father is not the son nor the Holy Spirit. We can't say there are three sons because there's only one son. And likewise, we can't say there's three Holy Spirits because there's only one Holy Spirit. Thus, Augustine says, if we settle on this term person, then what is meant by person is common to all three, right? And he adds, clearly, it is because the Father is a person, the Son is a person, and the Holy Spirit is a person that we can say three persons, right? So far, so good. It's very straightforward what we're talking about there. Uh, Many questions on that. So Augustine continues. Um, He says, there's another term, God, that is also common to the three. He asks, if we call them three persons because what is meant by person is common to them, why can we not also call them three gods? Indeed, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So why do we not say three gods like we say three persons? We're running into a bit of a problem here. So Augustine concludes, he says, If on the one hand these three are together one God because their inexpressible mutuality, why are they not also one person for the same reason? Thus we should not be able to call them three persons any more than we call them three gods, although each one of them is God, whether Father or Son or Holy Spirit. So in other words, do you have something, Barney? Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. The, the Son takes on the human form, and that's where our knowledge of God ultimately stems from. And, interestingly enough, though, this Jesus also tells us about the Trinity, right? So we're led back to these questions. As much as he gives us answers, he also poses questions. And that's kind of what we're trying to answer here. So what Augustine's saying is that if Godhood is common to the three, and personhood is also common to the three, why do we call them one God and three persons? Right? Wouldn't it be actually more proper to say one God and one person? Um, that seems to make more sense. So you, you see the problems that we run into when we're trying to find the right terms to name the one and the three together. So listen to how Augustine wraps up his conclusion. He says, So the only reason, it seems, why we do not call these three together one person as we call them one being and one God, but say three persons, is that we want to keep at least one word for signifying what we mean by Trinity, so that we're not simply reduced to silence when asked three what, after we confess that there are three. I really like Augustine because he's, he's really humble, and he never, sometimes he does, but he mostly stays within the bounds. And he says, you know, we kind of keep the term person simply because we have to have one term to say that there are three. And Augustine says this is in the context of um, detractors against the Christian faith. Well, three what? They're pressing us with these questions. We have to say something. It, it might be nice if, you know, maybe there were no detractors and we could just say, yeah, three. There are three. But we're pressed, and so we have to say something. So we say 
persons. So he acquiesces. Um, and again, it's right that we retain a deep modesty here and that, we, not, and that we, we don't overstep our bounds and say too much. Because the more we say about what the three are, the more we press into those divine mysteries, the more we, yeah, what's the phrase, um, wander where angels feel fear to tread or whatever the statement is, you know what I'm talking about, where we get into those modes, um, our speech becomes more and more untrue, right? We're talking about what we simply cannot explain. So Karl Barth, he has this fantastic quote in his typical, you know, um, lofty language. He says, the more the distinctions of persons is regarded as taking place in and grounded in the divine essence itself, the more inconceivable becomes the inconceivability of this distinction. This distinction participates in the inconceivability of the divine essence, which would not be the essence of the revealed God if it were conceivable. Hence, neither person nor any other term can perform the service of making this distinction really conceivable. So the problem, Bart says, is not with the term person in particular, but with human speech in general. If one word... If one, rather, were to exchange the term person for any other term, um, the church has used hypostasis. That's the Greek word. Um, Karl Barth himself used mode of being um, or whatever. The problem still remains, right? So why is it that this is the case? Well, Barth says because the distinction of the persons is regarded as taking place in and grounded in the divine essence. Okay, so what we're dealing with here is not God's works. We're dealing, what we're dealing with here is not some sort of outward manifestation of God, but the divine essence itself. So if you guys can rewind all the way back to our first class, uh, first class of the last lecture series, we talked about the transcendence of God and therefore his inconceivability. And so when we ask this question, three what, we're stepping into the territory of the inconceivability of God. And so Bart is saying, because this question is within that realm, we can't really give an adequate answer. Because approaching the divine essence, our words and our concepts begin to disintegrate. The inconceivable cannot be conceived. So we might know there are three, and we do. We believe that there are three. Because the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father of the Holy Spirit, nor the Holy Spirit the Father of the Son. There are three. But what these three are far surpasses our ability to conceive, right? We know there are three, but what? That's something beyond our means. So human speech at this point is overcome. Yes? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, and and I think uh, I think three names could work right as long as we qualify it and say it's just not not mere titles, right? 
in the sense that each name corresponds to an individual entity or however you want to phrase it. Um, but the reason I kind of like that term names is because, as we'll see at the end of this lecture, that's where the meat is. If we're trying to distinguish the three, we have to go to the names, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah, Mike. Well, um, again, it depends on how you understand names, right? So if it's like, it, you know, I have three nicknames, it's like, okay, well, the three nicknames are just referring to the same one person, and the nicknames refer to aspects of my personality or whatever it might be. So yeah, that's where you can run into trouble with the names. Um, so maybe, again, in that highly qualified sense, you could say three names, because what we find in the biblical data is that the, the names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are concrete and irreducible names. Again, the Father, that's not a name that can be applied to the Son or the Spirit, and likewise the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, in relation to the others. Um, so that there is, uh, I guess, some credibility to that, but also danger, like you were saying, Mike. So, getting back to the inconceivability, our speech begins to fall apart, right? What, what are we going to say? What are we going to, how are we going to conceptualize this? And really what we're admitting here is that there is no, um, well, we, we don't have the tools to conceptualize the Trinity's oneness and threeness. And I'd like to say also, that doesn't mean it's illogical, right? Um, that's a, that's a, I mean, if you get on the internet and you watch a YouTube video, you'll see into the comments everyone talking about how illogical and ridiculous the Trinity is and how it's a fabricated doctrine. That doesn't mean it's illogical, um, but it's just incomprehensible. And uh, anyway, they can have their God who they can conceive. We'll keep ours who is a little bit above us. But what I want to do now is, um, having pointed out the inadequacy of the term person, I want to still commend it as um, an indispensable and appropriate term. Because out of all the inappropriate terms, what makes person the least inappropriate term is the relational import that it carries with it, right? We think person and we think someone who's open to others, someone who can communicate where there's a bit of relationality there. And that can't be lost in this whole discussion. So we might reasonably say, three what? Well, there are three things, um, or three aspects, or um, again, have some of Prophet Bart himself, uh, three ways of being, whatever. Yet all of these terms lack what the term person contributes, and that's intimacy, that's relationality, and etc. So David Bentley Hart, in his book, Beauty and the Infinite, he says, the language routinely offered as alternatives to the term persons invariably fails to reflect the immediacy, livingness, and concreteness of the scriptural portrayal of God. And when we hear that, we're compelled to agree. No other word, at least those that are offered as alternatives to the term person, um, has yet been able to capture as Hart says, the immediacy, the livingness, the concreteness of the divine dialogue as it's portrayed in Scripture. 
So I'd like to show you one of these wildly interesting and fascinating and mind-blowing divine dialogues and scriptures. So this is quoted, this is Psalm 40, but it's quoted here in Hebrews 10. It says, the author of Hebrews says, when he comes into the world, he says, so he's speaking of Jesus, or the Son in this, part, in this sense, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. So who's talking? Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, when he comes into the world. So it's Jesus talking prior to assuming a human body, prior to his incarnation. We're speaking in eternity. And who is Jesus speaking to? Who is the Son talking to in this passage? The Father. Right, he's talking to God the Father. So, I mean, I don't know how... how, crazy bold the scriptures are in this respect but these are the words of the son to the father they put them on his lips sacrifice and offering you've not desired but a body you've prepared for me so you know how literally can we take these words it's hard to say because the father and the son aren't speaking human words um you know is this the exact words that were said you run in all kinds of interesting questions and so on and so forth but the point is the point is, however, is the address and response, this dialogue, this conversation uh, between the two. Such relationality, the speaking and listening, makes this term person all but irreplaceable. And if a better, more suitable term should ever arise, um, it has to capture this personal element. And nothing has really ever stuck through the you know, 1,500 years, that person has been around as a good replacement because they all kind of lack what's captured here in Hebrews 10 um, and obviously other passages. You think of Jesus' baptism. You think of John 17, particularly the whole Gospel of John and this dynamic conversation between the Father and the Son. So, does that make sense? Person's an inadequate term, but yet still the most appropriate. Yeah, Bernie. Say no more. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Awesome. Yeah, we'll hold that one. So that was, that, was a, that was a good insight. So to sum up, again, this term person, although it's most fitting, we're not using in its precise meaning. Um, in its Trinitarian usage, when we say person, the term is stripped of all its earthly and human connotations. Instead, and again, we're in the spirit of Augustine and Bart, as they, those other quotes we read, uh, we want to be real modest here and say that it's a, it's a placeholder and it points beyond itself to an inexpressible reality. Herman Bavinck, in his uh, Reform Dogmatics, speaking of the term person, he says this, in the dogma of the Trinity, the word person simply means that the three persons in the divine being are not modes, but have a distinct existence of their own. What comes out of the term person is that the unity of the divine being opens itself up in threefold existence. So, the term person, as it's used in Trinitarian theology, simply means 
that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have a distinct existence of their own. Not, not as individuals, but that when we're dealing with the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, we are dealing with three. And that there is this irreducible threeness there. In other words, the Father is a person in the sense that He's distinct from the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son is a person in that He is distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a person in the sense that He's distinct from the Father and the Son. That's really what we mean by the term person. It's very, very, very uh, minimal in its usage. So have you guys ever seen the Trinity Shield? I should have put the image up there. It's that triangle, right? And in the middle it says God, and then on the outskirts of the triangle, on each corner it says Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then there's a little connector from each one that goes to God, and then there's other connectors that says is not, is not, is not. Father is not the Son, Son's not the Holy Spirit, so forth, right? What we want to do is just put the term person right there. Father is not the Son, Son is not the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is not the Father. There's an irreducible threeness. The three are not a, merely a mirage. It's not simply human construction, but a real and actual distinction with God, within God. Persons, as we say. That's the term that we use. Yes, Mike? Right, and that's where we're running into that terminology. I read that and I was like, Mike's going to say something. <laughs> right, it's, it's just, it's hard, not only, not, without even using the term, right? And I think that's why, that's why when you understand what the term person means, it's easier to just say person than then to try and, you know, state it just so ever rightly and, and, and precisely that way. So you think the word distinct... Um, okay, yeah. So distinct existence as referring to distinct beings almost. So what it sounds like? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Aren't they, I mean, they're distinct. Like that study I showed you on John. Yeah. The beginning of John, if you take an original uh, Greek that is written, it's saying that Jesus was always there in the beginning. Right. Face to face with God, and he was God. Right. All that's there, so they are distinct people. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, well, that's the problem that we're all running up against is like, well, how do you say both? Because, yeah, they are, if the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, there is a distinction to be made, um, and yet there is one God. And so I think what Mike was taking exception with was distinct existence, and that seems to kind of say three separate beings, almost like um, Trinitarian theology. Um, and so whereas John would say, in the beginning, the, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, there's two, and yet the Word was God, and they're back together. So it's... Right. Right. Right, and I, yeah, I think it's just we're, 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 I think we're trying to say the same thing. It's just we're trying to, it, you know, we're not finding the right, what, what were we going to say, Mike? 
Yes. Right. Distinction between any one of those and God. So explain a little bit more. Right. Yes, that, that's it, right? They're distinct from each other, but not distinct from God. And, and that's the distinct existence of their own seems to say too much, right? And, and almost make it seem like that distinction in, as in three gods and not distinction within God. Yes, Jeff. Okay, so, <laughs> so um, you have to take, right? So let's say we just go back and take Hebrews 10. The scripture says that there is this dialogue in some sense, some very highly qualified sense between the Father and the Son. And if we even go to the John passage that you brought up, uh, the Word was in the beginning, the Word was with God. And that Word with God... Um, literally means he was toward God. And it seems to convey this idea of intimacy, right? And so we think necessarily of uh, some sort of back and forth going there, that the Son has an eternal conversation of some sort with the Father. And so when we think about Jesus' prayer, prayers on earth, we have to think about it in two senses. One in the sense that he's continuing, the Son is continuing his conversation with the Father that he's had from all eternity. He was always with God. So when he comes to earth, that eternal conversation is not broken. But here's where we have to add that other element. The son takes on a human nature. So now there's a human added to the mix. And so there's a human also involved in that. And it's not that they're praying in such a sense that the son is saying one thing and in Jesus, the man, is saying another thing, but that they're together. So to answer your question, um, I would say both. The son is speaking to his father, but Jesus, the man, you know, he, he's, he's praying to God. So yeah, so both of them uh, are there. But yeah, those are, I may, maybe that's one answer among many, I think, that, that might be given. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. That's what we're trying to say with person. They're all God, and it's a distinction within God. Yeah, distinct from one another, but not distinct from God. So, based on this, there's one more faulty construal of the three that we can rule out. And this is the understanding that the three are not truly distinct persons, but they're three roles or phases in God's activity. This is the um, theology or interpretation that's called modalism. In the church's early days, it was called Sabellianism. Um, yeah, modalism. And it asserts that God is not three persons, but transitions into three impersonal modes. Um, so God, in other words, assumes or transitions into three separate impersonal masks, you could say. Sometimes he's the Father when he needs to be. Sometimes he's the Son when he needs to be. Sometimes he's the Holy Spirit when he needs to be. So, um, just 
as the occasion requires, he can slip in and out of either one of those. And although modalism maintains a unity and oneness in God, it tragically denies that the three, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are anything more than temporary phases in God's time, in, in, in God's life, or God's action, rather, in time and space. So it's like God can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to us here, but he's some fourth unknown thing behind those three, right? That's kind of what modalism says. And uh, it was Tertullian, one of the church's early theologians, a very combative and brilliant theologian, who coined the term person. And he did so to defend against this very thing, to make sure that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit remain distinct from one another in our theology and that they do not melt into each other as phases or modes that are non-essential and accidental to God's life. So, again, so when we say there are three, and when we say the three are persons, we're necessarily ruling out this interpretation that says they're merely, you know, I think the, the Trinitarian analogy for this one is that you, you can have one man who sometimes, let's take myself, I'm, I'm in the role of a, a pastor, Sometimes I'm in the role of a husband. Sometimes I'm in the role of an uncle, whatever, right? Um, I can take those at different times in my life, but the fourth stands behind those. That's where modalism goes way wrong. What we're saying is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's a real threeness there. So, um, and this irremovable and permanent threeness, again, is everywhere present on the pages of Scripture. So John 14, 16 Jesus speaking, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So we have in this one verse three undeniably distinct subjects. The Son who asks, the Father whom he asks, and the Helper whom the Father sends. And so to deny or explain away this threeness would be to really to do violence to this passage and to render it unintelligible, right? A, 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 modalist, a modalist interpretation would make no sense. Or take Ephesians 2.18, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For through him, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. So our access as the church is to the Father, through him, that is the Son, and in the Spirit. So clearly, as indicated um, by the prepositions to and through and in, the three are distinct from one another, distinct within the one God, not as three separate gods. So thus, we can say without having to survey the entire biblical material that the Father is, and He is neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit, and that the Son is, and He is neither the Father nor the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, and He is neither the Father nor the Son. The threeness that confronts us in salvation history is nothing less than the threefold existence of God in eternity. So, I want to make sure we're all on the same page before we move into the second half of this. Any questions about oneness and threeness that I will inevitably give you inadequate answers about? Sure. Absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and that's the problem you run into. So you said, uh, uh, what was the oneness Pentecostals? What did you say? United Pentecostal. Yeah. So there's United Pentecostal, and there's also, uh, um, I forget the exact name. It's a certain Unitarian movement. Um, I can't remember the exact name, but there, Oneness Pentecostals, Unitarians, there are others who have this same view, right? And actually, Tertullian, in his, in his uh, letter, um, his treaty on this, uh, it's called uh, Against Praxis, the, the guy who was talking about this, and he says that modalism is, at the time, it was the view of the unlearned. He says, because you imagine growing up in a pagan context, right, where there's a, a ton of gods, and then you convert to Christianity, and all of a sudden you're a monotheist. And he says, so these unlearned, their initial response to the Trinity was to think, oh, they're manifestations of the one God. You know, they're his three separate personalities that he brings forth. And he says, no, 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 that, that's not the case. They're that distinction is real within the one God. So, well, you know, the average person coming to church, if they believe that, um, we wouldn't brand them a heretic, but it's like the Unitarian pastors or whoever should, who should know better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would, we'd stamp them with the label. Yeah. Yeah, so, having identified then that the three, the term three persons indicates a true and actual distinction within the one God, it's now left to us to ask the logical, the next logical question, what differentiates the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from one another? Okay, so we know there's three. We call these three Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now we're asking the question, what, what is that distinction between them? Why are they not the same? And so like we did last time, I want to spend some time talking about a view that um, is very popular about how to distinguish the three that we think is gravely wrong. So an influential account of the distinctions between the three, which is made popular by, you've heard these, well, at least this name, Wayne Grudem. Um, He got a very famous systematic theology book our books. Um, another guy, Bruce Ware, also very popular. And then another more recent guy, um, Owen Strand. They uh, teach what is called eternal functional subordination. So that's on your papers there. Eternal functional subordination. Um, or it can also be called eternal relations of authority and submission. Barney, this is what you were talking about. So As the name indicates, this Trinitarian framework distinguishes the three from one another based on a hierarchy of authority within the Godhead. So, a standard account of eternal functional subordination is that supreme authority is invested in the Father, um, whom both the Son and the Spirit submit to. A secondary authority is is invested to the son is invested in the son who submits to the father but exercises authority over the holy spirit and then the holy spirit who exists in a purely submissive role um, 
and he is obviously submissive to the Father and the Son. So that makes sense, right? There's a hierarchy there. Father over Holy Son and Holy Spirit. Son over Holy Spirit, but submissive to the Father, and Holy Spirit submissive to both, not possessing any distinct authority in himself. And so as the EFS view goes, it is these relations of authority and submission that constitute the very distinctions of the persons. So let's take um, eternal functional subordination. Let's take Wayne Grudem's uh, words. Yes, Jeff? Sure. <laughs> yeah. You're giving me you're blowing my cover. Yeah, there's the rest of the <laughs> there's the rest of the lecture. Um <laughs> but we'll uh Yeah. You guys want to wrap it up? You ready to go? <laughs> so Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology, he says, if we do not have subordination, there is no inherent difference in the way the persons relate to one another. And consequently, we do not have three distinct persons existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. For example, if the Son is not eternally subordinate to the Father in role, then the Father is not eternally Father, and the Son is not eternally Son. This would mean that the Trinity has not eternally existed. So according to Grudem, the EFS view is confirmed in the divine personal names. The very names Father and Son indicate rank. Father, according to Grudem, indicates authority, uh, leadership, and initiation. And Son indicates submission, subordination, and compliance. And this rank, this relation of authority and submission, they say, is the very thing that distinguishes the persons. If the Son is not eternally subordinate to the Father then the Father is not the Father, and consequently the Son is not the Son, and therefore the whole Trinity falls apart. And so EFS theology understands the personal names, Father, Son, and Spirit, as the key to distinguishing the persons. And in that they're right. That is the key. But they understand those names as implying a hierarchy of authority and submission within the Godhead. Therefore, again, as we've said, to deny those relations of authority and submission within the Godhead, um, Grudem says, is to deny the very essence of the persons and the whole Trinity itself. Um, Or again, you could put it another way, the Father could not be eternally Father unless he had someone to exercise authority over, because that's what it means, according to EFS, to be the Father. And the Son could not be eternally Son unless he was subordinate to someone, because that's what it means for him to be the Son. Um, So without this hierarchy, um, this superior subordinate relationship, the Trinity doesn't exist, is what EFS says. Now, um, back it up a bit. This was the topic of a very fierce debate uh, in 2016 on into 2017, a little bit in 2018 within evangelical theology. Um, You know, some people kind of confronted Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware about this, but it never really gained any steam. And then someone just randomly put a blog post out there and a fire started. And I had a great time going through all these old posts and you know, watching the theologians take jabs at each other because, um, because of what we're talking about here. And since this, um, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, I don't know about Owen Strand, he's a lesser player in this, 
uh, they've revised their views. Um, they've, they basically said, okay, we see that in some respects we're wrong and we need to change. But in another sense, they haven't. So, uh, again, to, to rehash, according to the uh, eternal functional subordination community, the doctrine of the Trinity absolutely depends upon these eternal relations of authority and submission. Owen Strand, he put it this way, there is no holy trinity without the order of authority and submission. So we get the point. Um, now, we want to answer EFS. And it um, seems like I don't need to do much work here, but I will do it anyway. So what are we to say to this? Um, and the first and most obvious answer, the one that Jeff, you already said, is that if we have, distinct, uh, if we have authority and submission, we have distinct wills. Um, how so? Um, think about the term submission. It, by definition, means to yield one's will to another. If the Father is supreme, then the Son's will and the Holy Spirit's will must bend to His. And as we've seen, this is a denial, or at least a substantial revision, of the church's received understanding of the divine unity. So what we taught last week um, this, that does not coincide at all with what EFS says. Um, and in part, that's what accounts for the novelty of eternal functional subordination. The old view of the divine unity, that there's one um, divine nature, one divine will, one divine operation, has to fade from view before something like EFS can come into the picture. It simply wasn't a possibility for the past, I don't know, 1,700 years. It just wasn't on the table until we started moving toward more social Trinitarian understandings of things. So, and of course, that's problematic. And the EFS community, they'll deny it, but we're, they're flirting with tritheism, right? Because three wills necessarily entails three centers of consciousness, and three centers of consciousness necessarily entails three natures, right? So we're, we're, they're in shaky waters there. And in fact, when Bruce Ware was pressed on this, um, he reverted to a form of social Trinitarianism. He says, each person accepts his role, each in proper relation to the others, and works together with the others for one unified common purpose. So remember last week we said that there's one divine will. He says now they work together. Like they're, they're like craftsmen who join in on a project together, who each have, you know, and, and, and so he goes to a social Trinitarian um, understanding to try and explain his view. Um, and he sounds a lot like those whom we considered last week. So let's just uh, bring out the, uh, the smoking gun. He says, the Trinity is by very nature a unity of being while also existing eternally, here's the word, as a society of persons. God's tripersonal reality is intrinsic to his existence. He is socially related. He is a socially related being within himself. So, um, though the EFS proponents and the social Trinitarians find themselves on the opposite sides of the theological spectrum, their, their, remar- their theologies are remarkably similar, um, and therefore their mistakes are remarkably similar. Tritheism lurks around every corner. And not only that, here's where this is the most disturbing. Um, in assigning exclusive authority to the Father, the 
eternal functional subordination crowd is also flirting with a um, heresy called subordination. That is, assigning the Son and the Holy Spirit um, an inferior status to the Father. So, let me read you what Ware himself says. The Father is supreme over all, and in particular, He is supreme within the Godhead as the highest in authority and the one deserving ultimate praise. Yeah, right. It's like you hear those and you're like, I don't know how you can get away with that. And, it, it, and you know, we're, we're not trying to bash or whatever. It, it, it's just important to, to mention. And, and, it, and it's hard to read those words in a charitable way. It seems no matter how you spin it, that if the Father is supreme and the highest in authority, the one deserving of ultimate praise, then the Son and the Spirit are necessarily lesser to Him. And again, he says in another place, Marvel at the Father's retention of ultimate supremacy and highest glory, even as he shares his work and his glory with the Son and others. Again, similar stuff. And in ascribing highest glory to the Father, must we then ascribe a lesser glory to the Son and the Spirit? It seems so, right? If we give him highest glory, then well, what's higher than highest? And everything has to be necessarily lower than that. So the conclusion that it leads to is pretty grim. If we ascribe a lesser glory to the Son and the Spirit, then it seems we must also assign a lesser divinity, right? If there's a lesser glory, there's a lesser divinity. If there's a lesser power, there's a lesser divinity. If there's a lesser wisdom, whatever, there is a lesser divinity. Right, and that's where subordination comes in. So the church's first real Trinitarian battle was with Arius, and he taught, which is called now Arianism, and is that basically the Son is the most exalted creature. He's divine, whatever, you can ascribe all those names to him, but he's essentially inferior to the Father. And so people will charge EFS theology and say, that's a form of subordination. They'll say the Son is equal to the Father, but their theology says everything opposite, right? It's like you, you, you can't have both. So, so unsurprisingly, um, the EFS crowd, like the social Trinitarians we considered last week, are driven by a social agenda. Whereas, uh, right, you saw that one coming. So, whereas the social Trinitarians were motivated for a more egalitarian vision of society, equality, let's bring down gender difference, let's so on and so forth, the EFS crowd is motivated by a concern to reestablish male headship in the home and in the church and in society. So take as one example among many Wayne Grudem's words on this. He says, The husband's role is parallel to God the Father, and the wife's role is parallel to that of God the Son. And although it is not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, the gift of children within marriage coming from both the father and mother and the subject of authority of both the father and the mother is analogous to the relation of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son in the Trinity. So, at this point, we're, just, we're going far beyond the bounds of reasonable speculation. In fact, in comparing the father to the husband, the son to the wife, and the Holy Spirit to their divine child, um, seems something that would come out of like ancient paganism it, rather than Christianity. Um, so, but, but here's the point, right? This understanding of the Trinity is, becomes the paradigm for marriage, Right, and it becomes the paradigm for uh, the church, and it becomes the paradigm for so on and so forth. 
and it's, it's a social uh, agenda there. And again, to be sure, the scriptures do affirm male headship in the church and the family. Um, however, it's important to note that it does not do so on the basis of God's triune identity, right? That's not where it comes from. And um, also, it doesn't extend that um, submission into society at large, as certain EFS proponents assert. And so, again, like the social Trinitarians, this is where the EFS community goes astray. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity is not to be used to underwrite a particular social cause. And so, we're drawing things to a close now, but I want to be careful not to accuse uh, EFS wrongly, but it does seem pretty obvious that uh, the Trinity is form-fitted to justify a particular agenda. And I think that's ultimately what's most disturbing. Is it seems that um, the, the EFS crowd is more than willing to revise long-standing doctrine so long as it provides them with a bigger stick to, to beat the feminists away or whatever it is. Um, and so in the short term, that strategy might uh, serve their purposes. And it's a very powerful argument, right? If you can justify that in the Trinity and justify that in the home, then, I mean, you can really, it's a strong argument. But in the long run, and I guess here's the trouble, it risks turning the faith into a merely reactionary movement, redefining its most central tenet of doctrine to suit its needs, right? And, and, And Again, I'm coming back to that theme that I talked about in the first one. Is like if if we just kind of knew the the history of understanding the church's received doctrine of the Trinity throughout the ages, we wouldn't have these problems, right? We wouldn't be in this place. Um, I heard earlier today, and I was talking to Kurt about it earlier. Um, he, one guy said, "Tradition is like um, knowing what mushrooms are poisonous and what ones are good without learning the hard way." Right, it's like the church has already said this is wrong, we and and without knowing that, we're going to eat the bad mushrooms, right? And it's like we could have avoided all this if we just had a thorough understanding of what the church has been saying for a long time, and not tradition in the dogmatic sense, but how we've been reading the scripture um, in that sense. So there it is, persons. They're not defined by a role of authority and submission. We get into some really funky territory when we do that. So now, um, as we wind down, I want to leave you with the question. What differentiates the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from one another? And if you'd like, you can take a crack at it now. What differentiates them from one another? Roles. So that would be similar to what we just said, right? It's, so they say eternal functional subordination. So it's their function in which he's subordinate. He's not functional. It's functional as opposed to ontological. Ontological referring to God's being itself. So they'd say ontologically, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are equal, but functionally in their roles, there's authority and submission. So we're going to say, uh, on that one, I say it wouldn't be roles. Mike, did you have something? And we'll get to that, but it's not the roles that distinguishes them. 
Um, they have different roles, but that's not what distinguishes them. And it can help us to find out what distinguishes them, but it's not that in particular, if that makes sense. And we'll see once we come through these next two lectures and then we get to the doctrinal synthesis and we start talking about why the Son does what He does in the economy of salvation and why the Father does what He does and the Spirit does what He does, it, it, the light bulb comes on because you see how it relates to what distinguishes them in eternity. So, um, roles is, yeah, let me backtrack a little bit because what you said is right there, Mike. Um, roles helps us to see what it is, but it doesn't necessarily, it is not necessarily roles itself that distinguishes them. So, Right. So that's the only thing that distinguishes them is that they're just the three persons that make the Godhead. Right. They just use the exact same thing. I mean, right. creation has contributed all of them, mm-hmm. everything's contributed all of them. So I, I, I don't know what they would be mm. different. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's like that's the question we get to. But then the, and th- what that leads to is then, what did the EFS, Eternal Functional Subordination guys say? They said that what distinguishes them is found in their names, right? Father means authority, Son means submission, Holy Spirit means ultimate submission. Right, but they're right in the sense that it's the names that matter. So when we try to distinguish the Trinity, what the church has always gone to is the names. And we're going to spend a lot of time in this next week, but those names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those are not names that merely refer to God's work in creation. That is the name of God. God is eternally Father, eternally Son, and eternally Holy Spirit. And so something about fatherhood, sonship, and spirithood tells us about what distinguishes them. That's the key, right? That begins to open up. Why is the Father not the Son? Well, because He's the Father. Why, well, what, is the, what does it mean to be the Father? And that's the question I kind of want to leave on your plates. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit because He is the Son. This, that's His identity. What does it mean to be the Son? I want to leave it on your plate. Same thing for the Holy Spirit. What is it that distinguishes them? So, um, essentially what we call that is their personal properties. They have, they have their distinct personal properties property, really, and that one property is fatherhood, sonship, and what we'll call spirithood until we get to the spirit and introduce new terms. So, any questions on that? So, please think about that, okay? If fatherhood doesn't mean authority and sonship doesn't mean submission and to be Holy Spirit doesn't mean ultimate submission, what might those names mean? Is there anything in the Bible that gives us clues or understanding? So, next week, what we're going to try and say We're trying to answer two questions. What is fatherhood and what is sonship within God's divine life? So I'm really looking forward to that one. Yes? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and when we get into fatherhood and sonship, we'll see how they can be one mind and yet not be 
separate from one another. So any more questions on, uh, on that? Fatherhood, sonship, and uh, spirithood. Theologians call it spiration. So anyway. Right, yeah, as long as someone knows. <laughs> but, uh, and I think, guys, this, these next two, I know this has been really conceptual, and I, even last class, I, was, I came out of it, and I was like, man, that was way too much to give for one class. Um, and I hope this was a little bit more digestible. But in these next, these next ones, I think we're going to start to get a little bit more of that payoff. And uh, so I just want to say thank you guys for hanging in and for being here so far. I guess with that, we'll, uh, we'll pray.